world. But the most important thing for all of us is that we first and foremost have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that if we seek him first, right? Seek his kingdom first, all these other things will be added unto us, right? God will take care of us. God will, will bless us in the way that we need to be blessed. But the things of this world can't define who we are. And that's so much, I was about to say more important. It's always been important, but it seems today that it's so important for us to understand that. And so I hope that's your, your testimony, your prayer, your desire. Hey, uh, Romans chapter 2, as we continue our study through Romans. And next week, we'll, we'll take a break from Romans, and, and we'll talk about the resurrection uh, outright. Uh, probably 1 Corinthians 15, that's what I've been thinking about the last few weeks, so that's probably where we're going. But uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is going to be our text uh, for today. The Bible says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath, when God, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, pay, who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again this morning. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth of your word and that your word is a sharp two-edged sword that pierces to the very core of our being. And Father, we're asking this morning as we study your word that you would use the person of the Holy Spirit, you would use the truth of your word to, to change us and transform us more into the image of Christ. May we be different people today because we've been under the truth of your word. And we're asking, Lord, that you would give us ears and to hear and, and give us minds that can comprehend this truth. And Father, we pray that you would uh, use this vessel to be bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So hopefully you remember. Let me get this thing back away from a little bit. Hopefully you remember that Paul is in the middle of an argument, uh, per se, uh, outlining the reason that he was eager to share the gospel with the church at Rome, and by extension, share the gospel with uh, all of humanity. And so he tells us, if you remember in verse 15, the, the three things that are driving this argument at this point, all the way to chapter 3, uh, these three things are driving this argument. Paul says, I am eager to share the gospel because one, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And then at the end of that, he's going to give this statement that we see two times in our text today for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, for those who don't understand that necessarily in the economy of scripture, there are only two groups of humanity. You're either Jew or you're Gentile. When Paul uses the term Greek, it is synonymous with the idea of being a Gentile. So you're either Jew or Gentile. So Paul is saying that God's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God to save any human being, no matter where you come from or who you are. Then he says, secondly, that I am eager to share this gospel to you because the righteousness of God is being revealed in it. Now, we won't get the full understanding of what that means until we get to chapter 3, and in particular, the latter part of chapter 3. And then the third thing that Paul says is, I'm eager to share this gospel with you because in it, the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, that just kind of sounds strange to us, right? How many of us are eager to share the gospel because the wrath of God is being revealed uh, in it, right? We don't want to hear about the wrath of God. But Paul, interestingly enough, 
starts where we don't want to go. He starts his presentation of the gospel in the book of Romans with how God is pouring out his wrath on humanity, not necessarily in the future, but right now. You remember Romans chapter one, it says these people were without excuse and God was pouring out his wrath on them right now. And he gave us a list of ways that God was pouring out that wrath. And then at the end of that chapter, when it talks about men being without excuse because they suppressed the truth of God, you remember the Jewish uh, Paul's imaginary Jewish debater or opponent would say, yes, those Gentiles deserve God's wrath because they do not understand the truth and they're suppressing that truth. And Paul says, oh, hold on just a minute. Uh, you, oh Jew, are just like them. You too are without excuse. And he begins to explain how the Jew also is under the guilt uh, of their sinfulness and they are under the wrath of God. And so that's kind of in the midst of this conversation that we're in. And Paul is showing us how God is going to bring all sinners, both Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, under his just just righteous wrath. And so to unpack that today as we continue this conversation, we're really going to look at it from three three headings. One, we're going to look at God's declaration that we see in there in verse 6. And then 7 through 9, we're going to see the the application of that declaration. And then in verse 10, we, we will see the implication of what this declaration and application uh, unfolds for us. And, and really, in a nutshell, the, the whole concept is that there is coming a day of God's judgment. God, yes, is pouring out his judgment right now on all, on all unrighteousness, but there is set in the future a day of judgment where all humanity, both Jew and Gentile, will stand before the throne of God and they will be judged. And the only ones who will be able to come through that judgment unscathed and escape God's wrath will be those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And what Paul is driving at in this dialogue is that every human being is guilty and every human being, no matter who they are, must come to God the same way through Jesus Christ. So the question before you today that leads to the invitation would be, have you Come to faith in Jesus Christ. If not, as John says in his gospel in chapter 3, verse 36, the righteous, the wrath of God abides on you right now if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. And there is a day coming when you, if you die in your sin, if you continue down this road of unbelief and unrighteousness, you will face the judgment of God, you will be found guilty, and you will be cast into the lake of fire but there's a way out and it's through Jesus Christ. So first, let's look at this declaration that God's made. If you have your Bibles open or your device open uh, to the text in verse six, we see that God says that he will render to each one according to his works. And so the statement that comes to my mind right off the bat when I see this is you and I need to understand two things. First, salvation is always by grace, okay? Paul is not in this dialogue going to teach us that works is what gets us saved. What Paul is going to teach us is that when we come to faith, we will do works that are in accordance with the righteousness that God has bestowed upon us, and that is evidence of our faith in Jesus Christ, that persevering Faithfulness to be obedient to God is evidence that we are the children of God. And secondly, we need to understand that judgment is always by works for the righteous and the unrighteous. And every man will stand before God and give an account for how he's lived his life. And we'll bear that out as we go through the text today. But the first thing that that jumped out to me in this passage, because I read verse 5 just to get us into the flow of the conversation, because the antecedent to the personal pronoun in verse 6 is God. When it says, he will render, well, who is the he? The he is God. God is the one who is going to judge. And you and I need to understand that. And that's why people, for the most part, I believe, have a problem with the issue of coming, uh, no understanding their need for a savior. 
People don't understand they need a Savior because they don't understand there's coming a judgment and there's going to be wrath that is given to those who are found guilty. And God is the one who is judging. It's all throughout Scripture. It's not just an Old Testament thing. As a matter of fact, when you get to Revelation, you get to chapter 19, you get to chapter 20, Jesus is coming. He will ultimately be the one that is doing the judging. We need to understand that God is judging all of humanity and he's holding us accountable. And his standard is sinless perfection. And the reality that we're going to learn about in Romans chapter 3 is that there's not one person who can measure up to that standard in and of themselves. So our only hope is that God will give us a way out of this judgment. And he has in Jesus Christ. So the first thing we need to understand, God will judge and God is the judge of all the earth. Write these verses down. You probably won't have time to turn there. Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Remember, this, this has to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. But it says, far be it for, for, from you to do such a thing. So this is speaking to God, far be it from God to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fair as the wicked for far be it from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just god is the judge of all the earth god will judge all of humanity and his judgment's always right and just we saw that in in chapter two already if you just go back uh one page probably or to the other side of your page In verse 2, we say, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. All of this list of sin that was given to us in chapter 1. God's judgment is right and it is deserved because all of humanity is guilty before a holy, righteous God. His judgment is always righteous. Write down Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That is the character of God. And God, when he judges humanity, judges out of his holy, righteous, just character. Not like you and I do, right? We judge out of our imperfect character and we judge others and more weighty than we judge our own selves, but not so with God. He is holy and righteous and just and pure. And he judges in that way for all of humanity. God will judge. God has turned this judgment over, however, to his son. John chapter five, verse 22. Jesus will bring judgment upon humanity for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Now don't let that throw us because we believe in a triune God, right? We believe in one being, three persons, God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit. So God is going to judge and God, the son, the second person of the Trinity has been given the authority to judge all of humanity. And when Christ returns again, guess what he's going to do? He's going to bring judgment with him when he comes again. So you and I must be ready now for the judgment of God. Because the reality is that most of us are going to leave this earth before Christ comes again. Unless he comes tomorrow, the next day, most of us are probably going to die first and stand before God. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. You must be ready now to face your maker because God is going to judge. Here's the other thing in verse 6. Nobody's going to be left out. Look at what the text says. He will render to each one. Each person is going to be judged. And how are they going to be judged? Look at the last part of that verse. By his works. You and I need to know God's keeping a record. I get it. He, he, he forgives us of our sin and he casts them in the sea of forgetfulness and he remembers them no more. But I'm here to tell you, the Bible says God's writing things down too. 
Look, look at what it says in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one, with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. God's got a book of remembrance in heaven. It seems like this book of remembrance has to do with those who are the faithful, those who are the elect, those who are the children of God. And from this book, there's going to be a distinction made between those who are righteous and those who are wicked. So the question that ought to come to our mind is, how do I make sure that I'm in this book of remembrance, right? We'll talk about that in just, just a moment. But God's going to judge every person by their works. Look at Matthew 16, 18, 16 20, or 16:17 Matthew 16:17 For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done So how important is it for us to to live in light of the righteousness that God's bestowed upon us God's going to judge us by our works Our works don't save us but God will judge us according to how we live this life that's why I'm always harping on you. There is no concept. That's why we spend all that time uh, on, on the idea of, of repentance. There is no biblical concept that you can get your ticket punched to heaven and then go about your life living however you want to live. There is a biblical expectation that those who come to faith in Christ will live in obedience to Christ every day of their life. I get it. We're not perfect. Lord knows I'm not perfect. Every single day, I think something, do something, probably say something that I ought not say. I get it. Romans chapter 7, we'll be there in a few weeks. The things I want to do seem to be the very things that I can't do, and the things I don't want to do seem to be the very things I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am who can save me from this miserable battle that's in me. Well, praise be to God. He's the one who can save us, right? But even though we're not perfect, there ought to be this drive in our lives as the children of God to be obedient to the commands of God, to be obedient to the character of God every day of our life. It ought to drive the way we think and drive the way we make decisions, drive the way we, we go about our employment, drive the way we raise our children, right? It ought to permeate every aspect of our life. And if there is not that kind of drive in us or that kind of desire to be obedient to God, then there's something spiritually wrong with us. And we need to do what Paul tells us to do in another place, examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Hopefully you're getting the point. God's going to judge every human being based on works. Revelation 22.12 Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Judgment is always by works. Salvation is always by grace. So that's God's declaration. He's going to bring judgment. He's going to pay us the wages due for the work that we have done. And you don't want to be on the end of the payment of sinfulness. Because Paul tells us in another few chapters, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. You want to be on the other side of that, the gift of God, right? I don't want to be paid for my wages of sin because it will lead to death and damnation. Here's the application. Paul tells us in, in 7 through 10, 
how God applies this in an impartial way. And to bore you with a little bit of, of uh, literature, th this is what they call a chiastic argument. It's in the ABBA form. Paul starts in verse 7 with how God is going to judge uh, the redeemed. Then in verse 8, he turns his attention to those who are unrighteous, the lost. Verse 9, he talks about the lost again, and then he concludes by saying in verse 10 uh, something about those who are redeemed. So there's your chiastic structure, uh, if that uh, tickles your fancy uh, to know that. So Paul, as he talks about how God is applying this, he says in verse 7 through 10, says, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, if we're not careful, we'll look at that and we'll come to a conclusion. We'll take that one verse out of context. We'll put it on our bumper sticker. We'll put it on our T-shirt and we'll say, see there, here's my theology. God saves us by what we do. And that's not at all what Paul is talking about. If you read the context of this whole argument, that's why I always go back to try to remind you of the flow of thought in this dialogue because Paul doesn't uh, succumb to bumper sticker theology. Paul is laying out an argument for us that God's going to judge all men because all men are guilty. Those who come to faith in Christ, as we will see in, the, in chapter 3, can escape this judgment and this wrath that is to come. But he's also making this argument that God intends for us who are believers to live in light of the grace and the mercy and the, and the, and the righteousness that Christ has bestowed upon us. And it's only those who have come to faith in Christ who can patiently endure in well-doing. How do I know? Because what Paul's going to say in the next chapter, in chapter 3, beginning in about, about verse 10, you, you know the passage. He says, there is none righteous. No, not one. There are none who seek after God, right? And he goes on to talk about our depravity in that passage. What's the implication? There's not a person on planet earth who can do good apart from Christ. Wednesday night I shared, uh, we, were in, we were in Psalms on Wednesday night, and Wednesday night we, I shared this point uh, as it relates to this idea of being good. Jesus even said, you remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus? And he said, hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit, king, the, uh, inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Jesus was making two points in that passage. First, he was asking this guy in a roundabout way, are you equating me with God? Because there's only one good being, and that is God. The second thing he was making, there is no good human being. Aside from Jesus Christ, there's not a person on earth who can do good apart from God regenerating their heart and changing them on the inside. So even, again, like I said Wednesday night, no offense to any of the old ladies in the room, and that may be offensive in and of itself just because I said old lady, right? But no offense to any of the old ladies. I don't care who you are. I don't care how good you look on the outside. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have, your heart has not been redeemed and regenerated. No matter what you look on the outside, your motives will never be what God intended them to be, no matter how good you may look. Isn't that what Jesus said to the Pharisees? Didn't he say that to them? You're whitewashed tombs. What did he mean? On the outside, you look bright and clean and pristine, but on the inside are dead men's bones, Right? What else did he say to them? The cup is clean on the outside, but it's the inside that needs to be washed. Isn't that what Jesus was saying on the Sermon on the Mount? All these religious leaders, we keep the law, right? If you looked at them, you would say, man, they're the most righteous people you could see. But what did Jesus drive home in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, hey, not only if you've committed the act of adultery, but if you've looked on a woman and had lusted after her in your heart, you've already sinned. If you hate your brother without a cause, what did he say? You might not have physically killed him, but you're just as guilty on the inside. What is he saying? We have a heart problem. Our heart is desperately wicked. That's why the, song, I mean the, the prophet says that God has to take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. We are utterly depraved. 
And without Jesus Christ changing us, we have not the ability to really do good. So Paul is talking to us about believers in this text because they're the only ones when Christ comes in, the Holy Spirit comes in, the Holy Spirit begins to sanctify us. Believers are the only one for the first time in our life that even have the possibility of doing good. So it is these believers that persevere to the end. That's why I started out with this persevering to the end is evidence that we are followers of Christ because we desire and work toward living a life of obedience to him. And so only Christians can do this. Let me give you some cross-reference just so you know that's not my opinion. It's really what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And, and look at the, the verbs in here. The old has passed away. And behold, depending on your translation, uh, all things are become new, I think is the way the King James says it. So what's the idea? There's a transformation that takes place in our life. We are no longer the way we used to be. We are different because we've been born again. Uh, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. We all know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? Y'all can probably quote it right now. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But we never quote verse 10. Listen to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for... Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what's God's intention for us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ? It's to walk in good works. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, be imitators of God as dear children. We have been called to live in obedience to Christ and walk in a way that represents the redemption that God has bestowed upon us, the righteousness that is imputed to us in Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, meaning this is how we know we've come to faith in Christ, if we keep his commandments. So what we've got to ask ourselves is do I look like what these texts say? Am I demonstrating my faithfulness in Christ by being obedient to his commandments in the way that I live my life every day? If I'm not, then I need to get on my knees before God and I need to do some of that repenting we talked about last week, right? I need to get on my face before God and, and ask him, beg him, through the person of the Holy Spirit, to sanctify me, right? That's what God expects from us. And you and I need to understand, we will be getting rewards. Both the lost and the saved will get rewards in that last day. The lost will get the reward of eternal wrath and punishment. But God has described for us in his word that he's going to give some rewards to those who are his children. 1 Corinthians, uh, or excuse me, first, yeah, 1 Corinthians 3, 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 1 Corinthians 3, 3, 3 12. Each one's work will be, become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Hey, maybe take an inventory of our life today. Am I going to be the one that's saved only by, through, only by fire? Am I going to get there by the skin of my teeth, uh, so to speak, right? Because I'm, I'm like the one who God gave the talent to, and I went and buried the talent in the, in the, in the earth, 
and I didn't invest that talent. In other words, I didn't work and invest my life in the kingdom of God. Take inventory of our lives. How much are we doing truly for the kingdom of God? And again, I, I'm not saying you got to be Billy Graham. I'm not saying you got to go around the world. I mean, some people are called to that, right? And some people must do that. But for most of us, we live in what I like to call grassroots Christianity, right? Your mom, your dad, you go to work every day, right? Or you're, you're a student, you go to school every day. Isn't that what Christianity and faithfulness to God look like in the Bible for the most part? Is every day ordinary people being faithful to God in what God and where God had planted them, right? You don't have, it's not just super saints who are called to be obedient to Christ. It's every single person living their life out daily in obedience to God. It's the mom being faithful to the task that God has called her to. It's the dad being faithful to the task that God has called him to. It's the employer being faithful to the task as an employer to those that God has granted him to work for him. It's the employee being faithful to his employer, being obedient to Christ, doing everything as if he were doing it unto the Lord. It's, it's, it's our children being obedient and honoring their parents, being diligent in their studies. It's us in the marketplace just like Paul when he, when he was there uh, in, in, uh, at Mars Hill. It's one of my favorite passages in all the scripture. Paul had been ran out of Ephesus, right? So they, they took him over there to Athens and told him to wait for the others that were going to come. You know what Paul was doing? He was in the marketplace, you know, kind of like a, the, the flea market, if you will. It was this open-air market. Paul was there in the marketplace, and the Bible says that he was sharing the gospel, get this, to whoever came by. Isn't that something? That's grassroots Christianity right there. When you're at the Walmart, right, take the opportunity when it arises. Share the gospel. You know, the worst thing they'll do is run you out of Walmart. And I say praise the Lord for that. <laughs> right? God expects us to live our everyday life in obedience to him. Then he goes on to say, this ultimate reward in the Bible is this crown of life. We see that phrase on several occasions, and sometimes it's the crown of glory. But just a couple of verses, look, look at this. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Kind of sounds like what Paul was saying up here in verse 7. Remember in Romans chapter 2, to those who patient, who by patience and well-doing, well to the one who remains steadfast on the trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. Peter calls it the crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In Revelation uh, 10, 11, we, we see what happens to those crowns that we receive, right? Another little bit of ling linguistic uh, uh, entertainment for you. Uh, it's a genitive in the Greek, this, this crown of glory. And it's probably a genitive of description. And so some people translate this idea of the crown of life as the crown that is life. And the implication of that is God is talking about this eternal life that he's going to give us, this everlasting life that comes through our faith in Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate reward, that we will be his people and we will be with him forever. But don't get all caught up about, hey, I'm going to have this reward and, you know, how many crowns are you going to have? How many crowns are, is he going to have, right? That, that's us thinking in our human uh, sense, right? Because aren't we envious in that way, right? Well, you know, I see Brett got, you know, he you know got a big old backhoe over there. I'd love to have that backhoe, right? Are we envious like that kind of stuff? Brett says, no, he spends too much money on the backhoe. But, right, aren't we envious like that? We see this house or this car and we say, woe is me. Why don't I have, have this kind of stuff, right? Well, we, we, it's not going to be that way when we come to, when we come to, to eternal glory, right? Because look, look what's going to happen. These, these 24 elders in Revelation, they, they represent the church in my opinion. Look what these 24 elders are going to do. 
verses 4, or 10 through 11 in Revelation 4. The 24 elders fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Those crowns won't stay on our heads long, right, if they are physical crowns. Because our ultimate focus is going to be on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be about worshiping him and honoring him and praising him. Now, you know, it's not going to always be, uh, you know, we're playing our harp on the cloud with our wings, right? Because the Bible makes it very clear in Revelation that we're going to have some responsibility. We're going to be doing some things. We're going to be ruling and reigning. Whatever that means, there's going to be activity in heaven. And so what we're doing now for the kingdom of God is just preparation for what we're going to be doing later in the kingdom of God when it's made an earthly reality. And Jesus is on his throne. All right. I've already talked about the reprobate. The reprobate's going their reward's not going to be a crown of life in the sense of eternal life. But hey, get this. Every person's going to live forever, right? There's not a person that's not going to live forever. Saved or lost. Because there's two resurrections. That's what the Bible says. And every person that's raised again will be given a different kind of body that is suitable for eternal life. The only difference is those who are redeemed, their eternal life will be spent in the presence of God, in the kingdom of God. And those who are lost, their eternal life will be spent in the lake of fire forever and ever suffering the wrath of God. And that reward for them you know we talked about crowns and we're judged by our works you know jesus makes this implication in his dialogue as it relates to to hell and the lake of fire and that judgment you remember the statement that jesus made he says that hell is the place where the fire never is never quenched and he uses this personal pronoun he says their worm never dies What's the implication of that? There is a specific measure of judgment being poured out on each individual person. Now, I don't understand everything I need to know about that, but it is interesting that Jesus would use that language. They're being judged for their works, just like you and I are. All right, let's get to the implication, and then we're going to go eat. The implication is found in verse 11. And this is really what Paul's driving home at. He started it in in verse 17 in chapter 1. That this gospel is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And now he's saying to both of these people, both of these groups of people, that, my, that God's judgment is just as impartial. That both the Jew and the Greek or the Jew and the Gentile we be, will be judged by God the same way, by the same measure. Because the Jew says, hey, if anybody's going to make it, I'm going to make it, right? Same thing with the moralist, right? Most of us, you know, I don't know anybody here that's a Jew, but most of us have been raised in a Christian culture until, you know, part of the last decade. And there, were, there used to be, I don't know if there, there are that many today, but there used to be everywhere you'd go to somebody's house and knock on their door and you'd ask them if they were a Christian. Yeah, man, I'm a Christian. Right? I believe in Jesus. What church you go to? Oh, they have to think a minute, right? But the point is there are a lot of cultural Christians in this world. And so if you ask them if they're okay, I'm, I'm good, man. I think I'm going to make it, right? So that moralist would look at their life and say, hey, I'm pretty good. You know, old so-and-so down there, he's worse than I am. So I got to make it, right? Well, not so fast, my friend. 
Because without Christ, all of us are guilty. And every human being will stand before God in judgment. And God's going to open up this book or these books that have all of these records of our deeds in it. And every person is going to be judged by those books. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, doesn't matter if you're Gentile, doesn't matter if you're white, doesn't matter if you're black or Indian or Asian, doesn't matter. Every human being will stand before God and be judged by the things that are written in the books. Don't take my word for it. Go, go with me to Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. This is getting toward that end of the book of Revelation and the great white throne judgment is what's taking place. In the first part of chapter 20, there's already been one resurrection. That's the resurrection of the just in verses 1 through 4. And it tells us in that dialogue that those who are part of that first resurrection will not be hurt by the second death. So right off the bat, you've got to ask yourself the question, how do I make sure I'm part of the first resurrection? Because what we're reading about is the second resurrection. And everyone who's included in this second resurrection is going to find themselves in the lake of fire. Look what the text says. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you get the scene? We're in the throne room. Every human being's been raised, standing before God. Books are open, and then there's another book that is opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. That's the book of our works, the book of our deeds, the book of everything that we've done in our life. Every human being is judged by works. Here's the problem. If the only thing you have to stand before God is what's written in those books, you will be found guilty. There's not a person on planet earth that's ever been born or that will ever be born that will be able to stand before God in light of the works that are written in those books and say, I get a pass. And Paul's going to make that excruciatingly clear in Romans chapter 3. All of us are guilty because none of us can live perfectly, right? Then the good news comes, in a sense, it's kind of a latent good news in this text. These people are just according to what they've done. And the sea gave up its dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, second time he said this, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were uh, thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now we didn't read it, but if you remember what I said about the first part of Romans or Revelation chapter 20, those who are part of the first resurrection won't be hurt by the second death. Well, the second death is being cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. And here's, here's the line that gives some hope, okay? Because we've got to answer this question. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, something happened here. Every human being was judged by what was in the books, and the implication is they are found guilty. But then the language changed. The ones whose names are not in the book of life are the ones cast into the lake of fire. So that causes me to ask myself a very important question. How do I make sure that my name is in the book of life? Because I don't want what happens to those who are not found written in the book of life. Well, God answers that question for us. To close this out in, in the last seven minutes, you, you can write these down, or, or if you want to turn there with me in, in Revelation. If you have your Bible or get your phone over to Revelation, or your iPad or whatever you got with you. And I want to show you something. 
how God answers this question for us unequivocally. How we can make sure our name is in the book of life. And there's something interesting happens. If you know anything about Revelation, Revelation chapter, chapter 2 through 3 are the seven letters to the seven churches. And in those seven letters to those seven churches, John is given this message from Jesus. And each one of these letters has at the conclusion of the letter a promise from Jesus to those who conquer or overcome. And the first one is in uh, chapter 2 verse 7. And he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who, depends on your translation, conquer, overcome, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now this word grant, or, or this word, uh, excuse me, conquer, overcome, it, it's where we get the word, the English word Nike from, you know, the shoes, uh, Nike. Uh, it, it, the word means victor. Okay, victor. So he's saying to the victor, this is what your reward is. So the question still comes, how do I become this victor? How do I become this one who overcomes? All right, so uh, verse 11 in chapter 2. Just a few verses down. He who has an ear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, we've already learned that the ones not hurt by the second death are the ones who are part of the first resurrection and ultimately the ones who have their name in the book of life. So how do we make sure we're part of this group? Then chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers or overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone in his name well, and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And then chapter 2, verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, almost sounds like what Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 7, right? Those who patience with patience continue in well-doing all right uh chapter two or excuse me chapter three verse 12 i'm skipping one on purpose we'll come back to it chapter three verse 12 the one who conquers or overcomes i will make him a pillar in the temple of my god never shall he go out of it or i will write on him the one the name of my god and the name of the city of my god the new jerusalem which comes down from my god out of heaven in my own name new name he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches and then back just on the probably left side of your page or one side of your page uh rome uh chapter three or chapter three verse five Jesus says, to the one who conquers or overcomes will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never, here's the, here's the phrase, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I want to be in that group. How do I get there? How do I become one of those who conquer, who overcome? How do I become this victor? Go back with me just a few pages to the left to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 1. We'll, we'll read through verse 5. Because God, through John, same author, answers this question for us. How do I make sure my name is in the book of life? How do I become this overcomer, this conqueror. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Well, we can't get away from that, can we? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God, what does he do? Same Greek word, same author. He overcomes or conquers the world. And this is the victory, same root word, that has overcome the world. What is the victory? 
Let's overcome the world. Are you there? It's our faith. Look at verse five. Who is it that over... That's the question we've been trying to answer. Who is it that's this overcomer? Who is it that is this conqueror? Who is it that can find their name written in the book of life and it'll never be blotted out? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life today? The only way it's ever going to be there and remain there is because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've done what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says you will be saved. That's the first question today. Have you been saved? Have you been born again? If not, don't let the sun go down today before you give your life to Christ. It's your only hope because judgment is waiting for every one of us. And the only ones who will escape that judgment and be ushered into the kingdom are those who have faith in Jesus Christ and their names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then the second part of the invitation, I guess you could say, would be just what Paul John says in this text right here. Twice. If we are followers of Christ, are we obedient to Christ every day of our life? Is that the driving force of our life is to be obedient to God? If we think that we can claim to be children of God and then live like the devil, we are fooling ourselves. Take inventory as I take inventory and say, Lord, am I being faithful to you? Is that the driving force of my life? If it's not, throw yourself on the mercy of God and ask him to redeem you. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this time we've had in your word. Father, we ask that you would be faithful to your word, that you will take the truth and that you will use it for what you intend to use it in our lives, that you would use it to sanctify us, that you would use it to draw men and women to Jesus Christ, that you would use it, Lord, to conform us into the image of Christ. And so, Father, in these next few moments, you have your way and your will. In Jesus' name, amen.